Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast where we talk about great movies. I'm David Annandale. And I'm Sean Duke. And today we're going to be talking about Le Salaire de la Peur, The Wages of Fear, uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's film uh, from 1953 that Time magazine called surely one of the most evil ever made. <laughs> I freaking remember that from last, last the last episode. Yeah. That's great. But uh, first, let's do a little bit of catch-up. Uh, what have you been watching and writing about, Sean? Sure. Uh, so for those that aren't reading the blog, which you should, I guess, uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff from 2014 at the moment. Um, so like I did reviews of uh, Blended, which is awful, uh, and I actually stuck it out to the end, David. I, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> Don't recommend it. Uh, yeah, I've been watching that. I watched the. I've seen all of the Taken films uh, again. Uh, some other stuff I've been watching. Uh, Nightcrawler is really exceptional, if you've not seen yeah. that yet. Uh, Great film. Yeah, I've been sort of doing that kind of thing, and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, and uh, obviously since last month, uh, Leonard Nimoy passed away. I've also been kind of inching my way through the original Star Trek movies from oh, yeah. start to finish um, and finding them interesting. Uh, I've seen all of them before and even fairly recently, a couple years ago, but... It's been a while since I've kind of rewatched them. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of mostly what I've been doing. And I, I'm probably going to change the way in which I approach reviews uh, because I, I realized trying to keep up with even just stuff published last year, released last year, uh, is impossible. So I think I may start doing some sort of like single director, like just watching through all of their their feature length films kind of thing. Oh, they'll set you down with Jess Franco, and that'll keep you going because he's got over 150 in his filmography. Okay, maybe we'll start with someone who's got like 12. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit more reasonable. But I, I thought that might be a, a, a better way for me to sort of approach it so that I'm not kind of trying to play this catch-up game of like watching everything from a year, and instead I'm, I'm maybe filling in some of my own gaps. So. Um, but in any case, what about you, David? Uh, well, actually, the last thing I saw in the theaters was What We Do in the Shadows, which was absolutely delightful. It's a New Zealand mockumentary about vampires. And uh, I, I, well, uh, Keelan Young has called it the funniest uh, horror, the best horror comedy since Shaun of the Dead. And I think he's right. That's uh, the one the film spotting people talked about? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it's it's wonderful stuff. Um, and uh, well, I'm gonna um, I'm I'm past due to get a review up on the blog for uh, the third season of House of Cards, which I found intensely frustrating. And uh, but the other night, uh, my wife and I watched uh, Union Station with William Holden, and what a masterclass in tight scripting that film is. There's not a single second that is wasted, and you're right into the suspense within the first two minutes uh, of, of the film, and that's counting the opening credits. Uh, so uh, really, really great uh, uh, sort of noirish thriller uh, set in Chicago's Union Station. That'll be fun great stuff yeah um and i am also seeing a film tonight uh oh bloody hell what the hell is the name of that it just came out and it's a horror film it follows there you go yeah that one. Oh, i'm very jealous i really want to see that uh, my friend invited me yesterday uh, obviously by the time this airs uh that will not be tomorrow that would have been sunday <laughs> um so uh but yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna see it and uh hopefully it's good i've heard great things about it it's got uh, a really high rating on rotten tomatoes which is giving me a little bit of hope as I become a pretentious film critic myself. 
I'm hearing it uh, sort of, uh, mentioned in the same breath as the Babadook as you know, one, among the really good horror films in the last little while to come out. So I'm really hoping to catch that one myself. Let me ask you, David, because you are you are much more of a horror aficionado than myself. I mean, horror is like that's your bread and butter. Um, and so just briefly, and we can't really go too much into it, but uh, do you feel that there is a kind of new renaissance of horror films right now? Mm, hard to say. Uh, I mean, we've had it, – it's always difficult to tell when you're actually in the period. Uh, there was definitely one that began in 1999. Uh, I mean, horror imploded at the end of the 80s. Uh, the 90s were a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Uh, and then in 90, 1999, we had the Blair Witch Project and the Sixth Sense and Stir of Echoes and uh, House on Haunted Hill and boom, 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 boom. Uh, I mean, there have been stirrings before that with the, the, the first Scream film, but in 99, uh, horror just exploded. And, you know, things come and go in cycles. So, I mean, just there's, there was a piece uh, just a little while ago wondering if maybe we are in another implosion of horror. Uh, because the, the box office had been poor for a number of releases. There hadn't really been much that was striking. Uh, but now recently we've had It Follows, uh, The Babadook, uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, often limited release stuff, not in the case of It Follows, but the other two have just been playing art houses and that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, and 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 to my uh, great dismay, I have yet to see any of them uh, because and I really really want to. I've heard such in- incredible things about all of those films. Uh, so there's definitely good stuff being made. Uh, Renaissance, as compared to what and when, yeah, really difficult to tell. Okay, well maybe we will know in another 900 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look, we'll look back 10 years from now and see where we're at. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, I would say we're, it's still, the situation is still better than it was in the nineties. Uh, so anything's better than the nineties. Yeah. I can't remember, uh, many horror films worth their salt from the nineties. I mean, I'm sure they're, they exist, but in terms of like films that people would know. Well, the silence of the lambs would be the big one, but the, uh, uh, but then you, you get, you get it's a foul, it's a very fallow period. There are other there are worthwhile films being made at that time, uh, but you have lots of films that are pretending not to be horror movies. And uh, I mean, I was so desperate to see anything in the theaters that I went to see things like Candyman Two. Um, oh God! Was, yeah, the first one's marvelous, but the the second one just not so much. Gosh, that I, I don't. I, I think I saw a a ripoff of Candyman, which looked like it was made with like a home video camera. That we rented from a, you know, back in the day when you can rent VHS tapes, which some listeners may not recall because they may be 12. Um, <laughs> and I remember watching that thing and just, we got it like 20 minutes into it because it was just so crappy. But I, I don't know if it was a Candyman film. It could have been like Candyman 15. You know? I think there were, I'm not sure if there was more than two. If there were more than two, I should say. <laughs> then it was a ripoff of Candyman because it was so bad. So, but in any case, uh, well, we will see. Uh, you know, I hope I hope that uh, we'll continue to get a lot of good films. Yeah. Um, because you know, I, I, there's been a couple articles I've seen that have worried about the uh, the era of blockbusters as they currently exist. Um, I don't think I necessarily agree that the blockbuster is going to destroy film, as some people have made the argument. Uh, but it is it is disconcerting when that uh, if that becomes what people remember versus 
smaller films like as you say like art house films but maybe yeah but you know yeah i mean i find some of those articles i mean funny because a uh, i mean we've been stuck with the blockbuster era basically since well jaws in 75 and star wars in 77 destroyed the american film renaissance and created the blockbuster era so we've been living the blockbuster era since the end of the 70s uh and so it's a little bit you know you know the, the the you know, uh, horses and barn doors as far as th- that's concerned. Uh, and so every year we see, um, uh, you know, like clockwork, oh, is the, um, is the blockbuster, uh, going to destroy, uh, the, the art of film, uh, almost as regularly as, uh, pieces about is the novel dead? Uh, and the, uh, it, it, the, the blockbuster, um, system certainly makes it more difficult for, uh, uh, films that don't fall into that to get made but they still are getting made and even within the, the blockbuster mode there's interesting stuff being done uh, and conversely uh, so you know uh, so we have pieces like that and then last year I saw one that was just as ridiculous going the other way claiming that I think uh, that, that, that 2013 was the best year for movies since 1939 no <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like really, really, okay. Um, and that's 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 um, even if you grant that a lot of good films were made in 2013, and and frankly, it's unwise to make any pronouncements upon the longevity uh, of of films until they've uh, there's been some time has passed. Uh, the article uh, was. You know, it, it felt like okay, so like the late '60s, early '70s never existed, as far as you're concerned. Um, so I think uh, pronouncements of that sort on one side or the other um, are unwise. Well, um, I was going to say that uh, 2013 could not be great because there was a Twilight movie that year, but actually Twilight ended in 2012 uh, because Part Two of Breaking Dawn came out in 2012. So uh, it's looking like that claim is better. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there were all kind. There, yeah, there was lots of stuff that came out then that that might that perhaps will stand the test of time. Who knows, right? Uh, yeah, you can't but, really make that argument. I mean, it's it's impossible to know what will stand the test of time when we're not even a decade out. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's why. I, I mean, I um, when I think of when I think of you know films that are important that uh, you know that you know think of quote unquote classics, however we want to use the, the word, uh, and you know as soon as we get even. As soon as we hit 2000, uh, I definitely would be very uneasy pointing to anything. Uh, and I'm still, uh, and even in the 90s, I, I get un- very uncertain. Um, you know, I think, you know, just, the, the, the closer the decades come, uh, the, the harder it is to make any kind of judgment of that sort. Well, I mean, just like if you just go to any, you know, Oscar a year any year from the oscars like 30 years out so like i just randomly pulled up 1978 right uh the winner that year was annie hall for best picture at least which i suspect annie hall is still fairly well remembered uh it it gets plenty of references in how i met your mother uh but when you look at the other examples you have uh star wars got nominated which Surely has stood te- the test of time, but what about the Goodbye Girl, Julia, and the Turning Point? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, some of those have, have, have kind of faded away. Yeah, um, uh, it, it's true. I mean, they uh, may have been really good films, but I, there's something more than just being a good film that makes it 
stand the test of time, that kind yeah. of cliche phrase. Oh, for sure, yeah. Sometimes sometimes not being a good film um, will... Uh, uh, <laughs> that is will, true, will too. Will be in its favor. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, I remember there was um uh well that um that, that article uh that uh, made that case for um uh the you know 2013 being the um uh the best year. Uh and I remember so okay that you know there's there's stuff that uh, certainly people um uh you know made a case you know for as being uh very solid. So the 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 nominees for that year um uh, were um, I just just trying to call that what know. year? Uh, twenty thirteen. I can pull that up right this second because okay. I'm on IMDb, which is I know that uh, Twelve Years a Slave won. Uh, so maybe it was in twenty thirteen. Maybe it was twenty fourteen. No, Best Motion uh, Picture did not go to to uh, Twelve Years a Slave. It was Argo. Was it nom- was Twelve Years a Slave nominated? No, okay, so twenty fourteen then. You're thinking twenty fourteen because that was the next year. Yeah. Um. Okay, pulling it up right this second. Let's see. It did win for Best Picture. Uh, this is also the the era in which you could now have seven thousand nominees. Yeah. And what were the nominees for Best Picture? So, um, the other than Twelve Years a Slave, there was Wolf yeah. of Wall Street, American Hustle, Nebraska, Captain Phillips, Philomena, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, and Her. Which is actually a really interesting list of nominees. It's not bad, but making that as the best year since, uh, since 1939, if we look at, the, say, the nominees for uh, 1974, the nominees are The Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, The Conversation, uh, well, Lenny and The Towering Inferno, which is an odd entry, but... Uh, <laughs> Wait, for 74 or 70? 74. Well, 74 is The Sting. Sorry, the, uh, the, that was the, well, the, uh, the, yeah, it won in 74, but it was made in 73. So the, the, uh, oh, the, okay. the films of 1974, um, were, uh, the God, you know, when, when you, do we have anything in, in, uh, in 2013 that we can say, uh, yep, yeah, it's up there with the Godfather Part Two, Chinatown and the Conversation? Oh, right, um, yeah. So 75, yeah. So in 75 is Godfather Two, uh, yeah. Chinatown Conversation, Lenny and the Towering Inferno. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can even say. I mean, I think we've got some really great films, but we're yeah. only going to know in yeah. decades. I mean, 20 years probably is the earliest when we could yeah. really feel confident in saying that is a film that is yeah. going to be remembered for a while. And it may turn out that nothing from the 2000s on will have the same staying power as something like any of the Godfather films, particularly one and two, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean it's impossible to. I'm sure I, uh, something will surely, but um, what we 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 can't know. Yeah, and for what reasons? I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, Star Wars has stood the test of time, but it's so drastically different from a Godfather movie, um, in yeah. every sense. So. Yeah, oh, of course, yeah, and it's it's a very different kind of film that that uh, uh, um, you know that 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 uh, accomplishes very different things for its audiences. Uh, for, um, and, uh, and fair enough. I, there was an interesting piece I saw yesterday making the case that, uh, um, Furious 7 should win Best Picture next year. Uh, and, oh, I saw uh, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, um, that, yeah, I mean, I don't think Furious, Furious 7, I mean, I haven't seen it, but given how most of that series has gone, it's not Oscar winning material. However, given that it is Paul Walker's last film, I could see it getting a lot of sympathy vote in terms of making it onto the ballot, not necessarily winning. 
Well, on that franchise, certainly, um, I mean, I haven't seen the last, the, uh, I've only seen the first one, but from what I understand, starting with the, s- the fifth, there's a sudden, um, dramatic increase in quality. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard quite glowing accounts that these are truly magnificently done, um, action movies. Uh, so, uh, I have to say, I, I am very curious to see it, uh, because the, the, the reviews are quite rapturous. That's interesting. I, I would not have, uh, anticipated that. I figured it was just always going to be kind of standard, uh, action fare, you know, not terrible movies, but not great, just kind of, you know, lots of cars driving really fast yeah. and yeah. punching. <laughs> Apparently with part five, it starts getting really, really good. Yeah, cause I remember part two was not that great. I mean, it wasn't horrible, it was just kind of, yeah. And then they did Tokyo Drift, which was, and then it, yeah, so, okay. I've so I guess from cars, dri- I guess from cars be- drive- being driven very quickly, we should move to trucks being driven very slowly. Yes, yes, or, or in some cases, uh, uh, moderately. Moderately fast, yes. Moderately fast at what may have been the, uh, the highway speed limit at the time. <laughs> well, or certainly, uh, here we, you know, long before speed, here's a moment where you must not drop below a certain speed or you will blow up. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, actually I found that very interesting, uh, cause you can make that connection. Uh, you know, uh, that's really fun. So, um, so again, we're talking about The Wages of Fear, uh, and, uh, it's a very interesting film. Uh, I did, find some stuff that I suspect we're going to want to talk about, which is the way in which this film plays with genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, it is uh, nominally an adventure film. I mean, just to uh, for uh, listeners who have not uh, seen it, um, it uh, uh, we find ourselves in an unnamed uh, South American uh, town where uh, the characters who are essentially the flotsam and jetsam of Europe are washed up uh and the only going concern is the american oil company uh that's uh uh b- busy exploiting the land and uh our everybody's in dead end lives until an explosion at an oil uh, uh drilling facility uh means that uh drivers are needed to take two trucks loaded with nitroglycerin hundreds of kilometers uh, over dangerous road and uh four men uh, take the take this challenge the result uh is uh, a a nerve-wracking adventure movie but one that uh is that deconstructs the form that is a withering takedown of uh masculinity and yeah. uh an a an existential nightmare yeah when you were saying you're describing it i kept thinking like four men go in one comes out sorta briefly <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it is an adventure film, um, and and I was reading a book on uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, so uh, Clouseau. Yeah, I'm just going to say his last name um, by Christopher Lloyd on his work, uh, and he makes the argument, a uh, very interesting claim about Wages of Fear, that it is, as you said, it's an adventure film like something like Indiana Jones. However, it bears some very striking differences uh in terms of its uh its treatment of the structure of an adventure film and so what he says is um he claims that all adventure films are typically and this is a quote uh a formulaic juvenile chauvinistic fantasy often made with lavish resources and immense technical skill 
but aspiring only to offer the dubious thrills of wanton spectacles of destruction and showing little interest in representing the complexity of human behavior and society plausibly. Um, And then about Clouseau, he says um, that he's actually interested in the same sort of generic quality, but he switches that out by making the focus on the character's reactions to extreme circumstances and to the discomfort that they feel to you know the various sufferings that they they have in in large respect this film is about the psychological element um i think uh uh oh god who who called it um an existential thriller is probably pauline kale uh because she's in every damn thing um and i think that's kind of the key here i think that uh, i don't necessarily agree with lloyd's assessment that all adventure films are basically this kind of formula i think that it's a little too much of a hard line, and I think he's doing this kind of to make Wages of Fear seem more significant because the the front of, end of the book, I mean, he's basically in his first pages, he's arguing whether or not uh, Clouseau is an auteur or he's uh, um, if he's just like a really good, he's just good at making genre movies. Um, and so there's an attempt, I think, on his part to sort of make him into a bigger director and more important uh, than what he perceives people think he already is. Um, and I think that that's kind of unfair. I think the film is uh it is an adventure film uh it is focused on those those uh the character reactions and their sort of existential crises as they go through well certain characters have more so than others um joe for example uh, has many problems we'll talk about him i'm sure Uh, but i think that it is it bears a lot of similarities to what are the more formulaic uh actiony versions uh and so i don't think that distinction is super widely distinct like there are two poles well, no, and I think it's un, an unfair um, uh, approach when you consider that uh, when the, um, the the writers in the Cahiers du Cinema were first uh, coming up with the 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 auteur theory, um, I mean, some of the people that they would consider auteurs, you know, everyone from Hitchcock to Edgar G. Ulmer, I mean, these are people who are working, who are doing genre films, and uh, Clouseau, uh, uh, he did them and he did them very well. Uh, the one he may be best known for uh, is the Diabolique. Uh, and was you know a, a film that kind of granted him the sobriquet of the French Hitchcock, um, and uh, the, the Wages of Fear though it certainly it demolishes the uh, let's say the, the 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 traditional adventure hero. It's still an adventure film. Uh, it, it's a very slow burn. It it breaks uh, most of the rules that uh, viewers would uh, expect from this kind of a a film. But it still is one of these, and absolutely grueling in in its suspense. I mean the um, the the time uh, the contemporary time review that called it uh, the, the most evil one, uh, the, surely one of the most evil films ever made, did so because of the its um, its politics and its philosophy. Uh, at, but at the same time, it acknowledged that it was one of the most uh, expertly wrought suspense films ever made and uh, said that Clouseau didn't seem to be so mu- uh, interested so much as tingling the viewer's spine as making them uh, suffer a paralytic stroke. Uh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So, That's you know, great. It, uh, it's, it's, uh, he, he's not interested in, in – I mean I, where I would um, – uh, say find a difference between say Clouseau and someone like Robert Altman who will venture uh, into uh, genre films that I get a sense in so much of Altman that he considers himself to be above the genre that he's um, dabbling in. 
Yeah, whereas, yeah. Whereas Clouseau is giving us a really, really good one. Yeah, I think um, the uh, Lloyd quotes someone uh, by the name of Rick Altman, and he says that uh, that what this particular film does is it, it concerns the particular ratio between, and I'm quoting here, uh, it... The, uh, what it exhibits between convention and in, uh, in t- invention, between the requirements of genre and the ingenuity and worldview of an auteur working with that genre. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, that yeah. um, rather than – he sort of breaks some of those conventions down. And I think that's most clearly in, in terms of the pace because we don't really understand what the stakes are for everything until almost halfway through. I mean the yeah. stakes in terms of the actual like suspenseful elements – because that sort of is the thing that comes to solve a different problem, which is yeah. that when we first arrive in this town, I mean, it is the squalor. It's people living in this like ramshackle town. Uh, they're from various parts of Europe. They speak multiple languages. They're for very most of them appear to be out of work. Uh, they're just kind of hanging around, bothering Hernandez as guy who runs this bar, food, restaurant establishment thing. Uh, and and they're just they they have no futures and I think there's even moments in it when um our our quote unquote hero I use a, a kind of in yeah. scare quotes because I don't know if it's quite so much that he's a hero a protagonist certainly sort of protagonist but yeah we can talk about maybe his non-hero qualities later mm-hmm. um but he says fairly early in the film that uh you know that you you know you can come here because it's cheap to get to wherever the hell this place is. Uh, but then when you get here, you don't leave. And the implication in those that first 30 to 45 minutes of the film is really that this is a death trap. Yeah. People come here and then they, they die here. Um, and even that occurs much later when the um, – I think his name is Bernardo, the, the young Italian yeah. man who uh, doesn't get the job of driving the truck of nitroglycerin and basically tells everybody I'm going to kill myself and nobody really takes that seriously except he does. He hands his letter over to um, – I don't remember who he hands it to. He hands it to somebody and then he, he goes – to Vera Clouseau um, uh, right. who uh, plays um, uh, 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 Linda. Linda, right, right. Um, and then he hangs himself. She finds him while she's praying for Mario who's her sort of boyfriend – person i'm not exactly sure maybe we'll talk about that later too um and finds him hanging um and it really is a place of death we know this already from the start um and there's a kind of interesting interplay here with the way in which labor is represented that uh, you know there's so much of nobody having any kind of job like it's non-existent but then there's that kind of that that creates the desperation necessary for when Bill, the the uh, the owner of the the refinery or the factory or whatever, basically says, "Here's a job for you guys to do, but it's going to involve you possibly blowing up to to basically just being like turned into dust." Yeah, um, and of course people clamor to take that position to the point when we see that scene in the line, they're all lying. None of them are truck drivers. Yeah, right? no, they, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's that that desperation. Well, I mean, it's there's a, a clear. Um, uh, political parable at work here too. When you look at the makeup of our, um, uh, of our, our tramps as they're called, they're German, they're Italian, they're Spanish, they're English, they're French, uh, they're, they're Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, and, uh, you know, begging for anything from the rich Americans, uh, who will, will take them for what they're worth. Yeah, and, and I did find that interesting, you know, we're, we're kind of going into the political element here. Um, 
I have not seen the version of this film that would have been released in the United States, but I found out, and I'm sure as you're aware, David, that uh, something like 21 minutes of this film were cut yeah, for the U.S. The released. Yeah, yeah, because of course this the the uh, the American side of it, at least I, I suspect for that period, uh, more so for that period than maybe from our perspective, it, it's not particularly nice to them. I mean. Uh, uh, no, it's it's very pointed, and this was one of the uh, things that that time review was uh, so objecting to. You should hear what people elsewhere are saying about us, All right? And remember that this is the um, uh, you know we're we're entering in into uh, the McCarthy years uh, in, in the yeah. United States, right? Uh, the uh, this film was made the year after Singing in the Rain. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want a, a huge contrast in uh, I mean that, that that's a ridiculous comparison, but uh, the there are many aspects of the Wages of Fear which uh, are, would be unimaginable in um, in an American film from the same period. I mean, even the language, uh, the, the the subtitles um, are, uh, on the Criterion edition aren't bad, uh, but they leave out some of the profanity. Uh, the uh, but there's. There's absolutely no way that an American film would be capable of having – from that era of having somebody tell somebody else, get fucked. Right? Uh, oh, wow. So I missed that. So that's something – again, it's my my flaw of not having a second language, uh, particularly not having French as my second language because I didn't know that at all. There's, there's all uh, – I think there's a couple of times it gets translated uh, that way. But the, uh, the, the language in there is, is absolutely as profane um, as well as those characters would be using. Uh, the it's uh, but yeah it has um, uh, yeah I mean the they're 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 swearing a blue streak like they're in a Quentin Tarantino film. That's really fascinating. I, I, I find all of this the I mean I understand the period and why they they feel necessary to censor. I mean there there are even things that they do like when we did Godzilla on the Skiffing Fanti show we talked about you know the the U.S. version of it and the kind of way in which they try to reframe it to be. More Americanized, um, and it, it it it's a very bizarre process because I think if you take out the political elements, you lose the 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 desperation, the the, the yeah. mechanism behind the desperation. It just sort of becomes like it actually becomes an even more horrifying film, and not in a good way. It just becomes like here are a bunch of desperate Europeans who are just going to work for like no reason. Uh, without the politics that is kind of under underlying that, and and it is as you said, right? It is this post-war. I mean, America is is a superpower at this point. I mean, it, it becomes so after World War II, and it's just rip roaring across the globe. Um, in some respect, in, in in a push against what is the the Soviet Russia, um, but uh, it, it is. It, that sort of perspective needs to be preserved in a sense because it needs to exist in this film in order for us to understand what is happening to these characters and why they're even here. But what's also important uh, to remember is that these characters also bring it on themselves, right? Uh, and here's where the uh, the, you know, the existentialist core of, of the film comes out. It's not uh, – I mean and here it's a film that really – that it, is, is existentialist in the true sense, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's an ex, it's a, a demonstration of that that philosophy, right? That that the universe is meaningless except for the meaning that uh, you create yourself, 
uh and uh the i mean i think the uh, perhaps the, the 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 blackest moment uh is uh joe's death when uh he's trying to remember what's on the other side of a wall uh in in paris yeah and uh and uh mario has told him oh well, there's nothing uh, it was it was a vacant lot uh but this his desperation to remember what was there uh, you start to realize that that wall uh, is more than just a wall on a street. Right, it's um, death. It's the, yeah. the well, yeah, going to whatever's other. beyond life, I guess. Is, yeah. Yeah, and his final moment then uh, is his eyes widening in horror as he gasps out, there is nothing. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he dies. Uh, and so the uh, so since there is nothing beyond what matters is the life you uh, the meaning that you forge for yourself in your life and uh with the exception of uh Luigi and of course yes we are, have a film here which with the main characters are named Mario and Luigi and have to cross <laughs> obstacles uh, and by the way Luigi does wear a super yeah, mario bros hat <laughs> he does so other other than Luigi who is who has to get away or he's going to die, right? His lungs are getting filled with, with uh, concrete dust. Right. Uh, the others are, uh, Cuso gives us essentially a false heroism, right? They're risking their lives for $2,000 each. Uh, they, they, they want to get away from there, but we know that it was, it was bad decisions that brought them there in the first place. Uh, there is, you know, the, Yes, they perhaps we could see some of what they're doing as heroic, maybe, but uh, but um, Bimba uh, doesn't. I mean, he's not even planning to leave, right? He seems to be doing this just because he's bored. Um, uh, Mario and uh, Joe uh, want to get out, uh, but and will stop at nothing, and uh, so you know Mario runs Joe over, uh, trying to drive the truck through a a, a pool of oil, uh, because getting to the uh, the ending is is more important than anything else. Um, so there, it, it's it's a false heroism, right? So there's, uh, so along with the politics, uh, we we get the uh, a, a fairly rigorous philosophical disquisition, and uh, I guess what we haven't talked about yet the, the the total demolition of a a particular form of masculinity, because uh, good grief uh, is our protagonist uh, a, a real prize here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, I may go back to that in, in a bit because I think we're probably going to have to talk about that a bit more because of yeah. the way in which the male characters are presented. I mean, our protagonists are primarily um, – well, almost all the characters in the movie are male. There's uh, two women who have speaking roles, I think. Yeah, and uh, only one of them – yeah, only one of them is any uh, – uh, really is, is a character that we can talk about. Uh, the others are just bit parts that um, that, that show up. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and she was actually uh, uh, the director's wife um, and had been uh, one of the, the leads in the Diabolique uh, shortly before. Uh, she uh, was she, – she, she, um, she was good at being victims in his films. And uh, she certainly is uh, is another kind of one here. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I guess uh, a, a couple things uh, I, I do want to talk about: uh, it, Joe and uh, and Mario's relationship yep. um, is one of the things because you mentioned the scene when he runs over uh, Joe sure. and and inevitably leading to Joe's death because his his broken leg I guess gets infected and he dies um, and he has this this really 
really poignant death scene where he's sort of gasps, as you said, right? Nothing. He's just, there's nothing there. And then he dies. So at the oil scene, um, you know, this is coming after a very long development of their relationship. At the beginning yeah. of the film, we have, you know, Joe shows up and he's kind of like this gangster kind of character. Uh, when he and Mario first meet, it's Mario's like singing or whistling. Sorry, he's whistling this song and, uh, Joe just sort of stares at him, and I, and and I know that some people have interpreted this kind of this underlying homoeroticism of the film because uh, Mario oh, it's, says it's like more and more explicit. I mean, that's quite clear. I think uh, as as especially in the the first act of the film that really gets developed. Some of the subtitles don't don't make it as clear. Oh, okay, um, but uh, I mean the when there, there's that bit where. Um, uh, it's supposed to be uh, the day that uh, Linda gets to uh, hang out with uh, with Mario and uh, uh, and he gets you, sir. Yeah, but well, more than that. But I mean, like, but first, uh, he, he's all uh, he's always prom- to Joe. I, I promised to hang out with Linda, and then there's this kind of huffy. Oh, well, fine, off I go. And uh, Mario's there. Are you mad at me? And uh, so there's this kind of love triangle there. Yeah. Um, what's easy to miss in um, when we have the scene of uh, when uh, Joe is um, having his hair cut is in the mirror. Um, of the barbershop, you can see outside Mario slapping Linda. Uh, and, uh, then when, when Joe goes out, um, and he, he laughs at what Mario has just done, uh, oh, you tickled her a bit, did you? Is what he, is what he actually says. Um, and, uh, oh, I don't like nagging, uh, replies Joe. And then what the, and then the subtitle doesn't quite capture what, um, Joe says to him. What he actually says is, women aren't made from, uh, men like us. Right, yeah. Sorry, sorry, women are not from men um, like us, right? Uh, And, I mean, the whole relationship between uh, Mario and Luigi is set up as kind of husband and wife, right? With, uh, uh, you know, in in, in very, um, uh, you know, conservatively traditional uh, roles with Luigi doing all of the cooking and the house cleaning and, uh, and when, uh, Joe, uh, uh, sorry, Mario effectively abandons him, saying, oh, we're not married, uh, and, and takes off arm in arm with, uh, with Joe. So the, interesting. the, the, the homo, uh, uh, um, eroticism is, I think is, 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 is played up, uh, in many ways to, if we can, and here's where I think the uh, where, where Clouseau is is really having fun with the um, uh, the 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 traditional adventure film, right? I mean, we think of how often, even today, right, um, that female characters are present merely to reassure the audience of the heterosexuality of uh, the of, of the buddies or the actual leads, right? Um, and then here it's. Uh, so a, a, a film that, uh, from over half a century ago that would, could still be speaking to action films today, we have um, nominally a heterosexual relationship between Linda and Mario, but one that, where we never see any uh, affection. He's clearly just using her uh, to get yeah. cigarettes, uh, to get his clothes sewn. Um, he, is, he pats her like a dog when uh, we, we first uh, meet I her. I remember that, yeah. And when we get the tearful farewell, uh, the, you know, as, as the heroes head off on the dangerous mission and she's begging him not to go, he, he, uh, and she's clinging to the uh, truck, he just opens the door to throw her into the mud. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. There's she gets treated really poorly in this movie. <laughs> Good God. Uh, I I mean, from the moment she shows up, I mean, you can tell like uh, that their relationship is is one of of use. Uh, yes. It's it's. I mean, it's it's something that comes up later when when uh, Joe says, um, uh, "Oh gosh, what's the line?" I, I wrote it down here. Um, uh, you know, he's talking about in the context of fear, which comes from the title, right? They pay you to be terrified. There's there's your division of labor. You drive yeah. all I die of fear. Uh, but the way in which the film presents those divisions, I mean, there, there are in numerous different formats throughout, and not all of them are obviously terror-oriented shows, just being a little little melodramatic, but uh, I think rightly so, given that uh, he's basically been pissing his pants for 20 minutes straight. Um, but, you know, we see that, right, like, the, like women, uh, for the most part, right, the, the only really speaking role woman gets gets used and abused i mean she even gets used by hernandez which i yeah. thought the implication was that he wants her up in the room because he's he's getting some absolutely yeah. uh, you know i that's what i assumed obviously didn't show anything but I, i'm like really and yeah. then it, that was the moment at which i thought like well then mario clearly can't really doesn't care for her in the way that she thinks he does because he doesn't seem to have any real problem with hernandez using her in the no. way that presumably he has as well and it's uh, there's a line again. It doesn't. Um, it, it's not fully translated, and in, in including some of the the appalling racism when um, uh, Mario is showing um, uh, uh, Joe the pinups that he has in um, in in the house that Luigi and he share, um, and uh, he says, you know, the, the pinups are there basically so he can think about white women when he's not having sex with one. Right, right, yeah. Um, and, and though, though he, he, he says it in an even more appalling way than I just did there. So there's clearly, uh, I mean, there's, there's no sense of any kind of commitment, uh, to Linda whatsoever. I mean, we, we see him treat her, the, uh, other than the one time he tells Hernandez not to hit her, that is the only moment of kindness that, uh, Mario shows Linda in the entire film. Yeah, and it makes it very difficult, uh, to to like as a person, yeah. Uh, because you kind of always have that in the back of your mind, and and until you get towards the end, and and as I sort of started by talking about their relationship, uh, Mario and Joe as they they develop, um, and it's it's really interesting because it, it's sort of when we start the film, I mean, almost none of the characters are really particularly likable people. Uh, there may be think- some characters we sympathize with, Luigi being an exception. Uh, the kind of Luigi, yeah, I think a, Luigi and Bimba become quite likable, and so therefore you, we're yeah. going to kill them off at the beginning of Act Three. Sure, sure, but I mean, like they're they're kind of um, well, uh, particularly Luigi kind is, is somewhat of a stereotype. This kind of yeah. you know really likable working class guy, like everybody can like him because he's just so sweet, right? He's a nice guy, um, all those kinds of things. Uh, but but there aren't many really likable characters i mean it, the the implication that joe may have actually done something to the um uh, smirnoff yeah smirnoff smirnoff yeah. whatever his name is um right because we have this moment where we're bill um it is bill right yeah bill o'brien bill o'brien right um where, where he he basically goes to me he's like why didn't you pick me and he's like well well we're both old dude we can't do this job um and he's like well screw that and he's like well look if the other guy doesn't show up the job's yours but like He's gonna show up, and then of course, what happens is exactly what we expect. He does something to him. We don't know what. 
But he yeah, doesn't show up. You, 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 you think maybe he's killed him, though you didn't see Smurloff at the very end of the film. So, um, whatever he did wasn't fatal. But, uh. Knocked him out or yeah, got him something... too drunk he couldn't drive? Something. Yeah, yeah. But we never know. And it's the implication because up to this point, uh, we've gotten the impression that Joe is this very hyper masculine. He's very, uh, I mean, he's presented almost like a gangster at the beginning, right? He's having done these bad crimes. He ran contraband with Bill O'Brien in the past, right? He's this very, very macho figure. Uh, I mean, even that moment when he and Luigi have their conflict in the bar, mm-hmm. when he pulls out the gun and then he hands it to Luigi and he says, go on, shoot me. And Luigi won't do it. And he says, well, that's, you know, kind of the, the make of a man, right? Is whether or not he's willing to pull the trigger. And Luigi says, I'm not a killer. Uh, but that's kind of, it's sort of, it's essentially like a measuring dicks moment, yeah. right? And what he's gun is said, mine is bigger. Um, so like we're we're led to believe that that he is capable of doing really horrible things, which I think is really crucial for when we get to the second half of the film when that's all deconstructed, uh, and he becomes the complete opposite. He becomes a complete and utter coward to yeah. the point when he actually like runs away from the truck when they're on the uh, the the wooden overhang on the on the road he literally just runs away because he believes that this is the end we're all gonna die yeah Uh, and he seems to physically shrink he seems like such a big man in that uh scene with uh luigi but uh by the end um after after bimba and luigi have blown up and uh uh uh, Mario violently forces Joe to continue, and Joe is stumbling along. He's crying, uh, he's, you know, sobbing. Why are you so mean to me? Uh, you're lucky that I'm old and a coward. He becomes uh, and, Linda. Well, and he, but well, except Linda. Um, I mean, but uh, Linda uh, retains. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, whatever the, the when I think of what she. Um, keeps taking and taking and taking um, from Mario. She also is true to her convictions and stands by them. Right? Uh, and sure. also sees right through what, you know, the, the, she, she sees the lunacy that these, these men are, are engaged in. Uh, whereas um, uh, Joe just be, uh, just everything's gone and he's, he's shrunken. He looks like he's only about four feet tall. Uh, his, his pants are baggy. His, his arms are thin. Um, as he's just a sobbing wreck as he's forced to carry on in this suicide mission. Yeah. And that scene is, I think, really, really important because, um, again, their relationship in the beginning is, is one where Joe is, is presented as being the more masculine. And yeah, when we get to a- that moment, it's the complete reversal where he, he and he, I think that the film is attempting to do this. He's basically trying to turn Joe into into a woman. He becomes a woman in that moment within the film's vision of how women are, um, or certainly within the with certainly within the uh, um, the the perspective of those characters, what they see them as. Sure, yeah, and, that would be uh, fair. Yeah, and some of the insults um, that uh, uh, Joe, that Mario uses on Joe, uh, feminize him. Well, he almost explicitly calls him a woman at some point. I can't remember when, but I think it's what earlier when he's he's being a coward. Uh, he he called he says, "What are you, a woman?" or something like that. Um, yeah. But that scene, right when when we hear the truck, the other truck blow up, uh, and we see them have this altercation where Mario just basically beats him and set into submission essentially, and he walks away crying and blubbering. Right? Uh, I mean, that's what's happened to him is he's. He's from the process. He's begun as this uh, very, very 
sort of like I will do this thing, I'm manly, I'm I'm all of these kinds of things, and then slowly deteriorating as you go. And it's it starts the minute they get the truck. Because as you recall, right, with the before that when yeah. they, they were sort of going through the process, he's like, No, I know what I'm doing, I'm great, I know exactly everything, I'm good. I'll show you the ropes, kid. Yes. And then the second they get the truck, the first thing he does isn't just climb in and start driving. He inspects the truck. Like every little thing. He's like pushing on the tires. He's checking all of the lights. He's right? delaying. He's delaying. And, and what's, and then of course, when he gets in the truck, what does he do? He doesn't drive at a, what would you would think is a reasonable pace. He inches his way out of the mm-hmm. factory. And then they inch their way basically through the whole time. I mean, it, until they get to the moment when they have to go 40 miles an hour and he's too cowardly to go above 30. Um, so there, there, the, there's this the deterioration of his character as yeah. this sort of hyper-masculine figure into one who is, uh, who is not, who has sort of lost his masculinity. Uh, by comparison to Mario, who keeps reasserting it until he, even until the end, right? And this is something that Joe says in terms of age. He says at one point, uh, something to the effect of like, you know, uh, you you younger people haven't learned from the older folks that uh, you're not invincible. Right? Yeah. Um, and when we get to the end, that's exactly what happens because we have, you know, he succeeds, uh, and and Mario, you know, is taking the truck back and he's just driving recklessly on this uh, this mountain road and he's just driving back and forth and smiling and like there's it's cut between scenes of dancing in 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 the old town. And then, of course, he drives off of the road. He loses control and he dies. Uh, and I think I would say it's perhaps less a deterioration of character so much as a revelation of character. As you see oh. you know, who these people really were all along, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that did, did – I mean, Joe knew exactly how things were going to happen with, with Luigi, right? He, he was a bully, not a um, – uh, something that – he seemed brave, but in fact he was just being a bully. Uh, and the uh, the self selfishness of Mario that uh, reaches its its apex when he drives over Joe's leg, um, we've seen from the very beginning in his treatment of Linda. So the I think we we see uh, the, the 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 mission um, shows us more and more clearly who these uh, uh, what these people are made of, uh, and uh, in and in. Uh, with the exception of Mario and Luigi, it's uh, sorry, Bimba and Luigi. It's not flattering. Although I will say that the the oil scene, I don't know if I would say it's entirely his selfishness. Well, he uh, does because, wince. He does wince. He well, he it, the scene is played out like you know they've hit the, the okay. So for the, for those that have not seen the film, that this moment is that the the oil scene is a result of Luigi and and Bimbo's. Um, uh, their car blows up. Something, we don't know why. Something happens and their car blows up. We see it from a distance and then they go and they come up to where basically an oil pipeline has burst and has created this massive puddle in the crater where the old truck was. And for some reason the truck has disintegrated. I don't know exactly how that works, but you know, physics, whatever. Um, and so essentially, right, we're at this moment when it seems like there's no way, right? How are they going to get through this this pond of oil? Well, Mario says we're going to do it, right? It's it's not deep enough that we, we can do it. We can drive through this thing. And what essentially Joe says is you can't stop because it, it's slick, and if you stop, you will not get out. That he yeah. eventually does not get out is, in, is also kind of part of the, the uh, uh, necessary failure. But what ends up happening is that Joe is leading him through you know, uh, and gets caught on a, a tree branch 
and can't move. And what ends up happening is that Mario has to, under the belief that if he stops, he won't be able to get out, he has to run him over. Um, yeah. And you do see him wince. It's very, very deliberate and very, very noticeable. It's not sort of like a mild thing. He full-on closes his eyes and, like, just grits his teeth through it. Yeah. Yeah, so I he feel doesn't... like it's not so much selfishness as uh, they don't have a choice. Well, they don't have a choice. In, in the, they, they are trapped within the machinery of capitalism there. Uh, but also the, the fact that the, though he accepts that he has no choice. I mean, of course he has a choice. He could stop. He, he, but that means he'll be stuck. But then he is stuck anyway. And he gets out. Ironically so, stuck, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, but he just, you know, uh, the, but the thing is, you know, it's not like there's someone that is, um, has nailed his foot to the, that accelerator, right? It is still a mo- an act of, dis- uh, of will to drive over Joe, uh, because he, he deems this necessary. It is more important for him to get the truck to the other side than to not run over his friend's leg. That, that is true. I mean, there is certainly that. I, I will question whether or not they are still friends at this point. Well, well, they except, well, <laughs> Joe jo, jo, jo says they are, and we do then have Mario weeping over his death uh, later. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's an odd uh, thing, and also leading to I think one of the uh, a, a, one of the grislier moments of 1953 uh, when we see uh, Joe's floppy leg after yeah. the, uh, the the truck has, has run over it. I would also like to uh, mention just what an extraordinary moment it is when Luigi and Bimba's truck explodes. Uh, and I, I think here where just uh, we have one of um, uh, uh, Cluzo's masterstrokes because we've just had an excruciating uh, suspense scene where yes. uh, Bimba has uh, you know, filled a, um, uh, a, a thermos with nitroglycerin in order to blow up a boulder that has blocked the road. Right, and, and of course Luigi, and, being the one who does hard labor, has been asked to actually punch a hole into the rock, which yeah. is really, I think, very important for Luigi's character given that the reason why he's doing this is so that he doesn't die from having to do this same kind of labor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's so, uh, sustained and so effective. I mean, the, you're, you know, the, the way that the sounds of the crickets are, uh, are, uh, are getting louder and louder, uh, even though there's never any music and we see the sweat on, on Bimba's face. Anyway, it, 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 it's, um, it's extremely suspenseful. And then the, uh, the explosion, which also shows us how powerful the nitroglycerin is. So that we, so when a thousand gallons of it or however much of it goes off, they, I, you know, I can well believe that the truck would be vaporized. Um, and so we have the explosion and then, uh, and then the, 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 the rubble falling down, possibly hitting the jerry cans of, uh, of, of nitro. So anyway, we've had this long, long, excruciating moment. And the, the pattern that the film has been following has been these, these moments of terrible suspense followed by a bit of a lull where we can catch our breath. Right, yep. and that seems to be the moment we're in. Luigi and Bimba are having a conversation, admittedly a rather dark one, of uh, about Bimba, you know, getting shaved because if he's going to die, um, he's, if he's going to be a corpse, he's going to be a presentable one. Um, <laughs> and then we cut to uh, Mario and Joe in a more relaxed moment, and uh, Joe is rolling a cigarette and um, and singing to himself. And then in an extreme close-up, we see the tobacco blow away from the paper, and there's a whoomp. Sound. Yeah, and then and then Joe looks up, startled, 
and Mario uh, then looks startled, and we hear the screech of brakes, and we see them horrified, but we we don't know what they've seen, and then we see the we, we cut to the the huge uh, cloud of the, uh, the the truck having exploded, and it takes us a moment to realize, good God, what we've just seen, right? That two of yeah. our main characters have just been killed and and off screen. And I think uh, it, it, is, it is devastatingly effective, and I think it's success. It's a shock. It is. It's a huge shock, and I think it, it's how well it's done is highlighted all the more clearly if you compare it to the uh, the loose remake from 2000, Vertical Limit. Uh, if you want to see Wages of Fear without all, with all the politics or most of them removed, there you go. Certainly with all of the intelligence removed. Uh, <laughs> and there uh, it, it, we have um, – uh, I mean, this, this is back uh, in, in the era when people thought Chris O'Donnell was going to be a star. Uh, and we have, uh, and then Batman uh, and Robin happened. <laughs> actually, this I think was before, after Batman and Robin. Oh, God. Yeah, this is and, 2000, yeah. Well, yeah. then they were really delusional. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we have two teams climbing with nitroglycerin on their, in their backpacks to, um, rescue some climbers because that's what you do. And, uh, they discover that, uh, oh, wait a minute, it reacts to the sunlight. Anyway, we, it, it, there's a, they, they recreate the death of, uh, of Bimba and Luigi. Uh, with uh, the, our two secondary characters who have uh, just managed to get their nitroglycerin into the shade and uh, and are laughing and relieved. And we see the nitro looking uh, a lot like a stream of urine going down the snow into the sun. So we know it's about to explode. And then we see it explode because we're right with them. Uh, so we see them go boom. And then we cut to uh, the, uh, the other team where we have uh, Chris O'Donnell and... Um, um, uh, I forgot, uh, Scott Glenn and uh, Isabella uh, Skorupko and she is in the middle of rolling a cigarette and we get that same moment of the tobacco being blown away but this time we already I mean we've seen the explosion we know exactly why that uh, is is that a cigarette is being blown away and so at that point it merely functions to remind us that yes we know this is a wages of fear uh, yeah. uh reference but the uh, the impact of the scene has um it's spectacular but has none of the punch uh that Clouseau gives in 1953 well and and uh well, we kind of have to wrap up pretty quick here because we're getting close to actually close to an hour surprisingly right. um but i did want to just pull us back a little bit because um you know, you'd mentioned how how suspenseful the scene preceding that moment is, and yeah. why it is such a shock when we think we're in that lull, mm-hmm. and brilliantly so, and then we're like shocked out of it. We're sort of pulled immediately out, realizing we thought we were safe and we weren't. Um, and and so the preceding scene does a brilliant job, right? They find this rock and they're doing all of this stuff to do it. It's very suspenseful. We we see Bimbo Bimbo uh, doing the the you know putting the stuff in. And what we see from all of the other characters is they're standing by the trucks, you know, something like 300 yards away or something around the corner, and they all have these very nervous ticks. Oh yeah, right, that yes, they're doing. So, well so like Joe is is tapping and scratching and and squeezing his hands against the side of the truck in a, in almost like a rhythm. We have uh, Luigi actually bites off part of his cigar and chews the cigar, and we get the close up of his mouth of the mm-hmm. grittiness of the the cigar tobacco-y whatever junk that's in a cigar. I don't know what's in a cigar, just arsenic or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I forget what Mario's doing. Um, oh, he's, he's tapping a matchbox. Right, right, and, and, and kind of scratching. Yeah, yeah. So we see that, right? And then 
uh, Bimbo comes back and he's lit the thing, and then they all realize, well, what if it blows rocks high enough it could actually bounce on the on the truck, right? And so they're all like, crap, we need to get away from the trucks. We need to hide somewhere else. But Luigi, being the kind of character that he is, he says, no, I will stop it. And so what we have is a suspenseful moment when we think Luigi's going to be blown up because they can't stop him. And we hear the explosion and we see rocks tumbling places. It almost hits the canister that they, they originally siphoned the nitroglycerin out of. And we see that tension when Joe is looking and he just closes his eyes and it's almost like he's praying to God, like, mm-hmm. please no. And it doesn't. And then we think, well, what happened, Luigi? And then we find him lying prone on the ground, and we think that he may be dead because he's not moving until they get up to him and we find that he's alive. So we actually get a full-on tension, fear of death release so that when we get to that final moment when when they do actually die, yeah. that it's even more shocking because we thought for sure Luigi was safe. He yeah. didn't die. And the idea that we could watch it and it'd be so depersonal – like yeah. it, it's it's and what less than five minutes yeah. later yeah it's it is really i mean i i recognize that scene for exactly the kind of feeling you're talking about because when it happened i'm just like wow this that, that moment was really intense so um there's a lot more we could talk about but we are actually over an hour so we kind of have to stop <laughs> so uh but in any case david i'm guessing we would both recommend this film <laughs> Oh yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it is, it, it is a masterpiece of, of the genre, um, and, uh, a truly, uh, I mean, a, a film of exquisitely tailored darkness. I mean, a, William Friedkin's remake Sorcerer is really good too. Um, but even it though, uh, coming in the, uh, in, in the seventies, which was a, certainly a period of very dark American films, is not quite as dark as, uh, as Clouseau's original. Fair, fair. Well, uh, now is the time when I, we tell you what we're going to be watching next, which David doesn't know about because I originally thought he had guessed what I was going to pick, and then it turned out that I was wrong, uh, and then we decided that that was not one we were going to pick. Um, and so I picked something else, and I decided that, uh, David, we would go with something a little lighter. So All right. pick a romantic comedy. Okay. Because we've watched two very serious films and one very dark film. Um, and I made a couple rules for myself for how this would work. Uh, one, I can't pick a film that's in the same region of the world, the same continent as the one you picked last. Uh, so it's not going to be in Europe at all. all right. I mean, in terms of where the director or writer yeah, from. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, uh, the fabuleux destin d'Amélie Poulain. No, it's not that, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I, I've also made the rule that it can't be the same decade of whatever was the last film picked. And preferably, I would like for us in general not to like go 1950, 1960, 1950, 1960. Yeah. So kind of bouncing around as much as possible. So I picked the 1940 film. Oh yeah. It's a romantic comedy and stars James Stewart. Can you guess? Yeah. 1940 comedy with James Stewart. Um, I'm drawing a blank right now. It was this. remade as a film with Tom Hanks in it. Oh, not uh, in the same title, of course. No, because now all of a sudden I'm I'm thinking of uh, Sleepless in Seattle and um, um, oh, not Brief Encounter. Um, I forgot the now I've forgotten the film that uh, that it was uh, bouncing off. Um, so I should know. <laughs> I should yeah. I should know, but I've forgotten. Uh, well, okay. It uh, we're watching the film The Shop Around the Corner, starring oh, Margaret nice. Sullivan and James Stewart. Sounds great. So it should be very good. Uh, as as you well know, it was remade basically into You've Got Mail, right? Uh, which is 
I don't know. I saw it once. It was okay. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, not not one I ever got around to. So. Um, yeah, we'll just watch the shop around the corner instead because James Stewart is he's just amazing. Yeah. No. So, great stuff. I almost picked Rear Window, but then I was like, no, we need we need to be a little lighter because I love Rear Window. I think Rear Window is my favorite James Stewart movie. It yeah, there's, there was so many to pick from, but it's uh, yeah, that's uh, that would certainly be up there for me too. <laughs> well, in any case, guys, uh, if you want to uh, leave a comment about the wages of fear, uh, you can go to totallypretentious.com. It'll be there. You can also email us at totallypretentious at gmail dot com and uh, find us each individually on our Twitter accounts. I'm Sean Duke at Sean Duke, uh, and you are. I'm David Annandale at uh, David underscore Annandale. Perfect. So. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you can, do give us a review on Stitcher or iTunes because then we'll have a million followers and it'd be amazing. So, And uh, thanks, David. Thank you, Sean. All right. We will see everybody next time. Bye. Bye.